Hello, and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us today for this episode of Dialogues in Dermatology. My name is Sylvina Puglisi, and I am a dermatologist at Stanford. I have the distinct pleasure today of interviewing Dr. Daniel Eisen, Director of Dermatologic Surgery at UC Davis. We will be discussing guidelines of care for the management of actinic keratoses. Thank you so much, Dr. Eisen, for being here with us today. Totally my pleasure. I'm really excited to, to have this conversation with you, for sure. Great. This is such an important topic. Actinokeratoses are something that all of us as dermatologists see every single day. And I think it's so important to try to solidify guidelines for their care. Can you tell us how you became interested in drafting these guidelines? Was there anything that you were encountering in your role as dermatologic surgeon that motivated you to review this data? Yeah, absolutely. Just like I said, this is something that we see every single day. And as a derm surgeon, all I do is cut skin cancers off of people, most of who have these, these lesions. And it does seem anecdotally like the people who have the most number of these lesions see me the most. And, you know, after you cut somebody's skin cancer off for the 10th or 20th time, you, you start to feel real bad for them. You, you wonder if there's something else that you can be doing to, to help them. So there's that. Also, I've participated in other guidelines in the past and one of the things that I really enjoy is just delving deeper into the literature that's out there. I really love evidence-based medicine, making decisions based upon what the evidence shows, not necessarily what some expert somewhere says you should do based upon their own anecdotal experience. So I've, I've very much enjoyed participating in those types of efforts in the past. And when this opportunity came up, uh, yeah, I was definitely very, very eager to participate and, and help out where I could. Well, you certainly did a great job of performing a deep dive on this topic. Just the wealth of data within this paper is amazing and I think truly will be helpful to all of the readers. One question that my patients often ask is, how likely is it for this actinic keratosis to progress to squamous cell cancer? Can you shed any light on how we can best answer that question? Yeah, you know, that's an excellent question. And there have been lots of people who have tried to attempt to answer it. And it's not an easy answer to, to give. Studies range from anywhere from 0.2% to around 20% per lesion per year. In general, the studies that were most careful in their methodology seem to report lower rates. Meaning, you know, some people just said, yeah, there's a bunch of AKs here and come back again a few months later or a year later, you know, how many skin cancers do you have in that area versus those that carefully mapped out each individual AK and then determined whether there was cancer there or not. So for the more methodologically rigorous studies, the, the answer tends to be somewhere between 0.2 and 1% per lesion per year. There was a study done by Weinstock's group, and, and theirs was about 1% per lesion per year. And, and they even went out to four years, and the that about 4% at four years. And to me, that sounds about right for my patient population. But, you know, risk can vary a lot depending on what patient population you're studying. Are you studying people with a history of skin cancer versus those who never had skin cancer? Those with a history, obviously, are going to have a higher rate of skin cancers and can skew your results a bit. But yeah, I like that number from Weinstock's group, 1% per year. 
That's helpful. And you're right, it really does depend on what the patient population is that you're, you're dealing with. When you started working on this paper, can you talk a little bit about some of the disciplines that you were involved, other specialties that were involved in this process, what clinical questions you set out to answer, and how you defined the methods? Yeah, absolutely. So the AAD selected the group of people on this committee, and uh, I want to thank them all, including my co-chair, Todd Schlesinger, for all their efforts. This This was a huge effort from both the academy and from all the volunteers on the committee. In terms of the composition of the group, it was pretty diverse. We had people from private practice. We had people from academics. We had surgeons. We had general dermatologists. We had an expert from the AAD in methodology, Lindsay Frazier-Green, who was, whose help was you know, invaluable. We, we utilized a, a third-party company to help us with the literature search, and in addition to Lindsay Frazier-Green's efforts, we had a methodology expert on the use of grade criteria, which is the first time the Academy has used that criteria in their guidelines efforts. So it was a little bit of a change for everybody before we'd use the, the sort and these have different acronyms. Most people could care less what they mean, but it's just a different way of looking at things. And we had uh, an expert from that. We also had expert in skin cancer epidemiology. So a pretty broad group of people, including also a patient advocate and a patient advocate's uh, presence really quite important because things that they think of, you may not think of as a treating physician, right? because their experiences are different than, than ours are. And uh, I think it was an important part of the team, for sure. You were also asking about how we came up with the questions that we posed. And there were just things that interested us as practicing dermatologists for our patients. You know, What are the best topical treatments that we can use for AKs? How effective are they? What are their side effects? What are the best non-topicals, including cryosurgery or laser or... Um, uh, PDT, what different treatments do patients who are immunosuppressed, specifically transplant patients require? They certainly seem to be the people that are most afflicted with, with AKs and skin cancers. So those are just common types of things that, that occur to us as practicing dermatologists. And can you summarize for us the four strong recommendations that you garnered from the data review? Yeah, absolutely. So there were, there were a bunch of recommendations there. And the strongest ones were, I'm going to read them here for you verbatim. For patients with actinic keratosis, we recommend the use of UV protection. UV protection may include sun avoidance, sun protective clothing, and broad spectrum sunscreen. Mm-hmm. So there have been a few randomized trials on the use of sun protection. And they have been shown to significantly, but modestly, reduce AK counts. I think one study showed a 23% reduction at one year with the use of daily sunscreen. We all know from our understanding of carcinogenesis, there's three steps in in cancer formation. There's initiation, promotion, and progression. And certainly reducing the, the causative factor of initiation and promotion, you know, the ultraviolet light exposure, should in theory reduce chances that you get a skin cancer or an AK. And so it made intuitive sense to our committee members that that was an important thing to recommend for our patients. And that was a good practice recommendation. Good practice statements are are ones that you can make 
without lots of evidence behind them. Like if you're lacking like high grade evidence, you can make a good practice statement. And so since there was only like a couple of randomized trials and use of sun protection, we we're kind of forced to use that, that approach. Um, so our next recommendation, for patients with AKs, we recommend a field treatment with five fluorouracil or five FU. So there were five RCTs that we identified regarding the treatment uh, of AKs for concerned use of 0.5% uh, cream and the other one used 5%. And they all showed significant benefit over placebo, of course, with a high degree of skin irritation that we all know and love that results from treatment. So based upon uh, good study data and good outcomes, risk clearly outweighed the benefits uh, of tr for treatment. So that allowed us to make a strong recommendation with regards to, to 5-FU. For our next one, for patients with AKs, we recommend field treatment with hemiquimod. So interestingly, there's a lot more studies for hemiquimod than for 5-FU. And I don't know why that is. Maybe it's just because it's a newer agent. That'd be my guess. But yeah, there were, there were 12 um, placebo RCTs concerning the use of amicumab, And they studied 5% cream, 3.75%, and 2.5%. And all of these, we found significant benefits to use over, the, over placebo. So we had lots of RCTs there, good evidence in terms of adverse events, you know, skin irritation, just like for 5-FU. A decent number got influenza-like syndrome, I think upwards of 3% or so. I have seen that in my own patients, you know, something to think about, and infections, interestingly enough. You would think if you ramped up your immune system, you would get less infections, but they were complicated. You know, that was a potential side effect of its use, not one that is super intuitive. So for our last one, for patients with AKs, we recommend the use of cryosurgery. And that was a good practice statement. So like I was talking about before with the UV protection, there's surprisingly little randomized controlled trials looking at cryosurgery. You would think there would be more, but there's not. But based upon the recommendations of our committee, the experience of us all using cryosurgery, we know that it works well. There's cohort studies to support its use and that allowed us to make a, a strong good practice statement recommendation there. So those are the, the four ones. So one for UV protection, one for 5-FU, one for micamod, and one uh, good practice statement for, for cryosurgery. So reassuringly, it sounds like most of the recommendations that we are most likely to make and the treatments we most utilize as dermatologists do have a strong strength of recommendation based on good quality evidence or practice consensus. So that's good. I did want to ask when I looked at the photodynamic therapy recommendations, the strength of the recommendation is conditional. Could you discuss that a little bit more and just kind of guide us as to what that means and how confident we can be in utilizing a PDT for treatment of our patients with actinokeratoses? Absolutely. And I want to congratulate you on picking up probably the most controversial part of the whole uh, guidelines recommendations there is during the comment period, we had a lot of indignant comments about why we didn't make a stronger recommendation for the use of photodynamic therapy. I think most of us, or at least those of us that have had experience with photodynamic therapy, know it works well. I really like photodynamic therapy and 
and I participate in studies with it and written papers on it. And uh, I think it's a great treatment. But when we're going through and making recommendations, we're limited by the amount of evidence that's available on the treatment. And if the, if the evidence is of lower quality, our recommendation has to be conditional. So you can either make a strong recommendation or a conditional recommendation. There's nothing like in between there based upon the, the grade criteria. So the evidence for photodynamic therapy just isn't as good as for the other treatments. When we talk about the quality of evidence, it can be lots of different things. It can be the methodology that was used. It can be the confidence intervals that are calculated. You know, a wider confidence interval kind of limits the conclusion you can make. If you have a wide confidence interval and the efficacy of using photodynamic therapy varies between like two improved AKs versus like 100, obviously that's going to change how well you, you think the treatment works. And given lots of different variables, you know, the, the evidence just wasn't as good. So sadly, it had to be a conditional recommendation, not a strong one. That doesn't mean that it doesn't work. It just means that we need better studies. So another question that patients often ask is, okay, so I know I have to treat these actinic keratoses. Uh, which treatment is going to be the best? So should we freeze them today? Should I use a topical therapy? Should we do photodynamic therapy? And obviously there's no one answer, you know, <laughs> we can't say this is the best treatment, but how do these guidelines help us to better answer this question for our patients? Yeah, you know, this question really illustrates the, the importance of us as physicians to help our patients. You know, if you just had like an algorithmic approach, every patient gets 5-FU all the time because it's the best. You know, I think that would not serve anybody well because all our patients are different and therefore treatment has to be tailored to individual situations and our guidelines don't say which, which treatment is best. We just make conditional recommendations or strong recommendations. Clearly, somebody with a 1AK may not want to undergo all the, the, the hassle of topical treatments. They might just prefer cryosurgery, boom, get it over with. On the other hand, you know, if you have like a transplant patient who's had 20 skin cancers and he's got probably 500 AKs, he probably needs some sort of field therapy. So just the ability for us to be able to, to tailor things to each individual patient's need is, is important, you know. Similarly, some people might value a shorter course of treatment and um, other people might be more tolerant of it and, or it might depend on the patient's insurance and you know, all sorts of different things come into play, as you know. And having a bunch of different options to treat people, I mean, I think that's fantastic. That gives us a lot more ability to, to specialize treatment for every individual patient. You briefly uh, noted in the paper the option of a new therapeutic called turbinibulin. Can you tell us more about this emerging therapy? Yeah, so uh, turbinibulin, and I'm sure I, I just butchered the name there. So that's a, it's a uh, first-in-class uh, treatment that was just approved. Um, this came out after we had done our literature search, so we couldn't really include it in our guidelines recommendations. You know, that would be something we could probably cover as a, as a follow-up, you know, five, five years down the road or something like that. So it's got a new mechanism of action. It inhibits SART kinase, which is involved in tumor genesis. And it's also a tubulin polymerization inhibitor. So 
SART kinases are involved in cancers, colon cancer, lots of other different types of tumors. They originally discovered it as it was a virus that affected chickens and caused tumors in it. And I don't know how it got its name. But anyways, this topical medication inhibits cancer-causing gene, basically, and, and tubulin polymerization. Tubulin makes up the skeleton of cells, and you need it to, to undergo division and mitosis and stuff like that. So those would be the two mechanisms by which it's thought to, to work. And it's the nice thing about it is it's only a five-day application. You put it on once a day for five days. So it's relatively short compared to some of our other treatments. Two randomized trials were done by, by the company, and they found that 44 and 54% of patients achieved 100% lesion reduction versus 5 and 13% for vehicle-treated areas. So that's a significant improvement. The outcome measure, 100% clearance, is kind of a, kind of a newer one that, the, that most people seem to be emphasizing these days over just percent lesion clearance. It's like if you put the thing on, you know, do one, you know what percent of people have 100% of all their lesions go away in the treated field? It's a kind of a more stringent thing mm-hmm. than just lesion percentage reduction. So it sounds like a promising new medication. Obviously, it's new, and we'll need some, some time to kind of figure out what the, how well it works relative to our other available options, but it's always good to have more options. So, you know, I'm enthusiastic about it. Absolutely. It sounds really promising. I'm wondering if the recent withdrawal of indinal mebutate uh, as a treatment option due to the increased potential increased risk of skin cancer might affect the clinical uptake of this new agent. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Sure thing. Yeah. I mean, I can speculate just like anybody, right? So Ingenome, mebutate, it works by a different mechanism of action. Mm-hmm. So that ingenome mebutate works by neutrophil-mediated cellular cytotoxicity and induction of necrosis of neoplastic cells is what, what's in the handout there. So it doesn't work the same way. So I'm not too worried that the two would cross-react. I mean, but the, you know, what's, what happened with the, Inchinal mebutate, uh, it brings up a good issue. You know, sometimes you don't realize there's an issue with a medication until several years later when more information comes out. So anytime something new comes out, you know, you got to be a little bit cautious about, about its use and kind of keep an eye out for things. But yeah, I don't think that the withdrawal from the market of, of inchinal mebutate is going to have any, any effect on the turbinibulin. Thanks for that. And then you did mention that, and this comes up all the time with my patients, they just don't want to do a long course of fluorouracil or calcipatrian, especially in, in pre and, and we hope post COVID times where folks are out and about a bit more, they just don't want to think about weeks of having their face or arms or what have you, you know, be impacted by the reaction. You did include some studies here on the use of fluorouracil with calcipatrian. Would you be able to summarize some of those findings? for us? Sure. So there was really only one RCT on the use of calcipatrian and 5-FU, and that wasn't considered enough evidence for us to be able to, to make a recommendation on it. Certainly, the authors found a, a significantly higher rate of AK reduction in the combination group than they did in the 5-FU side alone, but they also found a much higher rate of irritation and you know, our, our patients already have a hard time 
tolerating a five FU on its own, then you add something else on top of it. It's, you know, something to consider, but, you know, I think we need more information on that, that combination. If, if, if the results justify it, you know, if they can actually significantly reduce AKs and more importantly, the instance of skin cancer it might be worth the extra irritation. But I think we need more studies on it before we can draw any conclusions on it. It's, it's a good question to ask. Well, I feel like we could spend all day talking about these detailed specifics here because, they're, again, there's such a wealth of information. Is there anything in particular that you wanted to point out as uh, the senior author on, on these guidelines, uh, something that you learned were surprised by ways that this might impact your own personal practice? Yeah, absolutely. I was surprised by the lack of evidence uh, for cryosurgery. <laughs> you know, it's just so fundamental to to how we practice every single day and to find that uh, there, there wasn't any RCTs on it was kind of crazy. <laughs> so that, that was a surprising finding. And also the surprising finding by the lack of better quality evidence for photodynamic therapy, that surprised me. You know, it just seemed like every other day there's a PDT study, but uh, <laughs> apparently it wasn't, it wasn't enough. So yeah, we, we could use more studies in that. Those are my two biggest surprises from doing these, these guidelines. Yeah, that's so true. We use cryosurgery every single day and we just assume that we have all this data behind it. But it's interesting to hear that, that you really didn't find many randomized control studies at all supporting its use. But we know, I mean, anecdotally, right, we know, we think it's efficacious based on our patient response. Yeah, we've got good cohort data, but not RCTs, like right. placebo-controlled. Like, there's a bunch of studies where people freeze AKs and they say, you know, certain percent go away. But you don't know if they would have gone away with no treatment, right? So that's that's the lack in the quality of evidence there. Yeah, absolutely. Are there any areas for future research that uh, you're thinking about of tackling next as they relate to actinic keratosis? Yeah, future areas of research that I'd like, obviously cryosurgery, we could use some more PDT. These combination treatments, I, th I think it's inter interesting. We should certainly see where that calcipotriene uh, 5-FU goes, or maybe you want to do it with a micromod instead, or or combine it with with a PDT. I mean, sky's the limit, right? There's so many things. Or, and of course, we just had the new treatment approved, the turbinibulin. It'd be great to see even more different classes of of medications come out. I mean, we haven't really had the, the magic bullet that just wipes them all out with no irritation and minimal fuss, you know, come out yet. So I think we're, we've got a lot of work ahead of us, but at least we've got a lot of good treatments that we can, we can use for our patients now. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Eisen. It was such a pleasure to speak with you today. And we really appreciate you walking us through these new guidelines for the management of actinic keratoses. Yeah, my pleasure. And just before I go, I just again like to recognize the work of, of all my colleagues on the committee and uh, Dr. Schlesinger, my co-chair, and uh, Lindsay Frazier at AAD. Definitely, this was teamwork at its finest. We could not have done it without everybody's participation and uh, definitely debt it to everybody on the team. Well, thank you so much. We hope you have enjoyed this edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. This is Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. For more podcasts, including bonus issues, check us out online at the website of the American Academy of Dermatology or through the Dialogues in Dermatology app. You can now also sync your subscription to your favorite podcast app. 
new podcasts are released each week in addition to our monthly JAD podcasts. We hope you enjoy these new options for listening to dialogues and the increasing content for your listening pleasure. Thank you.